everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Chase Perkins, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Robert, thanks for having me, man. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, we've been, I think we we're introduced through Chris Calicott at TVP. Yeah, uh, and TVP is uh, working with you guys over at Impervious. So, just by way of quick introduction for my audience, you are the founder of Impervious uh, Browser or AI. What? Yeah, Impervious AI. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I'm Chase Perkins, founder of Impervious AI. We build the tools and infrastructure for the peer-to-peer -peer internet standard. One of those tools is the Impervious Browser. Uh, co-founded with Mark Stites, my CTO, and we've been busy. You know, uh, it's been out for almost 30 days, and um, our goal and the function and purpose of the browser is to build censorship-resistant technology stacks. Hmm. Um, so Impervious in its simplest form is a suite of peer-to-peer -to -peer tools for communication, uh, file transfer, uh, payments, and identity management, all built into the world's first Bitcoin Lightning native web browser. The reason we chose a web browser is because it already uh, serves as like a de facto operating system. It It's where we spend a majority of our time when we're not on third-party apps and services. If we're not on a Zoom call, if we're not playing video games, if we're on a social uh, network, we tend to be 
in the browsers. So by normalizing and standardizing um, all of these capabilities uh, and helping parties realize that uh, privacy need not come at the cost of performance. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you can stream video, if you can message, if you can send payments, if you can do live document editing, um, what like what particular value proposition do these third parties provide? Um, so you know that's the what we do, and I'm happy to discuss why we do it. Very cool. So, impervious browser is intended to be kind of a censorship resistant browser, I suppose. And then it is. Could you just explain its relationship to Bitcoin? Are you guys built on top of Bitcoin, or or how does? Yeah, absolutely. How are, how are you using the censorship resistant properties of Bitcoin in impervious? Yeah. So impervious started as we built a suite of peer to peer. Um, uh, basically we built a programmable layer on Bitcoin lightning and we demonstrated that the Bitcoin lightning network can be used for so much more than just payments. It can be used as a signaling and command and control layer for messaging, for video to it, basically to provision out of band, uh, peer to peer, uh, and an encrypted video. Um, so you hear a lot about Bitcoin, the asset, uh, we equally care about Bitcoin, the network. So if Bitcoin's the greatest system of distributed compute uh, in human history, it's uh, fault tolerant, it's resilient, um, it's censorship resistant. And then the Bitcoin lightning layer, layer two, that real-time liquidity layer can be used for so much more. It can be used for uh, basically a programmable layer because um, you get like 300 bytes for free per transaction. So mm. we had released initially a suite of APIs to allow anyone to in integrate peer-to-peer -peer capabilities based on the Bitcoin Lightning Networks, like a layer three, into their application. And then we said, you know what? We need to unify this capability. Instead of having you know 50 different developers, we go, hey, let's pull this all together and let's fuse Web 2 with whatever you want to call it, Web 3, Web 5, mm. the peer-to-peer -peer internet. So we coalesce uh, Bitcoin Lightning Network, uh, both for payments and for routing information, uh, HTTPS, WebSockets, and WebRTC. So basically, greater discretion and control over how the individual sends, stores, receives, and accesses data. Uh, and um, happy to kind of talk about the identity component, what that means. Yeah, interesting. So... Um... Yeah, let's go into that. So I assume you're referring to decentralized identifiers. Yeah, man. Which is got it. Which is something that's um quite interesting because right now we're using a lot of state authorized identity modes, right? That's like your driver's license, exactly. your passport, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess we could start with what is a decentralized identifier, also called a DID, and then how are you guys yep. making use of them? <laughs> So if we take a step back, you know, what's the first thing you need to get on a Zoom call or open a Gmail account or a social media account? You need a centrally assigned and permissioned identity. Um, the permissions and controls around that identity will determine the access uh, and use of that specific network, typically a subnetwork that's not interoperable with anyone else. Mm. Facebook's Facebook, Twitter's Twitter, Zoom is Zoom. Uh, DIDs, decentralized identifiers, enable interoperable, permissionless platforms and portable identities. So like you were saying, DIDs allow individuals to control their identity without 
centralized ID, state-issued ID, email, or phone numbers. So um, they can be published and universally resolvable uh, in a directory. There's something called uh, uh, ION. ION is a layer two on Bitcoin, an identity layer. It's uh, universally discoverable and resolvable. And it's basically a way for you to advertise, hey, this is who I am. It's a published uh, con point of contact. Or, and we support both ION and peer dids, P-E-E-R dids, which are just private decentralized identifiers that designate how you'd like to send and receive information, your ports, your lightning address, your relay, however it is, smoke signals, however you'd like to be to communicate, uh, your did de de uh, designates that. So we then build a decentralized identification communication network on did. So like um, before we built any of these applications, we had to build the infrastructure that enabled it. And by consolidating uh, our uh, APIs with uh, these peer-to-peer -to -peer tools and DIDCOM, we basically fused ways for you to control how you send and receive information. And then you start going, hey, look, like these things function and they don't just function, but uh, they actually have superior performance uh, without a third-party throttling, compressing, mm -hmm. hosting, um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's what excites mm. us, especially in the face of the the great consolidation of the internet that we've seen mm. over the last 20 years. So these would be, these DIDs are effectively a replacement to the username password combination that we're all so accustomed to? Yeah, so it's um, both a replacement on um, username password, but also it designates how you'd like to send or receive information. So. The problem with these third-party services toggling you on or off, um, if you've built up a network and you're dependent on it, you know, we've become dependent on digital tyranny and, and the creature of big tech where um, we've created an incentive structure where parties genuinely fear who's controlling these platforms because if they aren't receiving favorable uh, treatment, then uh, they're in fear for their network and their ability to participate. So. If you think of it like instead of it being a centrally issued and permissioned ID, you are importing your ID. The worst thing Twitter can do is say, hey, you can no longer post publicly, but all your DMs, your ability to message, your ability to communicate and be discoverable still exists. It just flows around it. Mm. So when you import your ID and how you'd like to send or receive information, um, it's less consequential and catastrophic if any one actor decides to uh, limit um, your participation on a subnetwork. Mm, interesting. So that gets into this other third-party risk, which is deplatforming, cancellation, yeah. whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it. So how is it, let's say... I guess let's get a vision for the future. Like, what does this look like in the future? You're, you're talking about sure. Twitter running on a DID rather than username password combination. Twitter decides to deplatform you because you sent a tweet about Trump or something like that. Right. What? How does the DID environment advantage the user over the traditional environment? Yeah. So, like you were alluding to, the primary reason big tech can arbitrarily censor, cancel. Uh, manipulate and sell your data is because you don't own or control your identity or data on their system. You're simply asking permission, you're requesting permission to access and use it. Um, impervious and the peer-to-peer -peer internet standard 
you can fix Twitter and these other um, services by saying, hey, look, anything that's not published publicly, like say in the in your Twitter feed, all those comms and signaling, they happen off platform. So your your DMs are actually peer-to-peer -peer and encrypted. And that designator is your decentralized identity that you imported and shows that, you know, one of your contact endpoints is Twitter, but it's just one. It doesn't turn you on or off. And so uh, you've heard Elon talk about uh, WeChat. I actually have been talking about it for two years. Uh, WeChat, the Chinese super application, uh, it's very convenient and a one-stop shop for search, for social media, for payments. Uh, but it also represents complete and total information dominance. Mm. Um, it relegates the individual and uh, it quite literally eviscerates any semblance of control or autonomy. Um, and that's what we're moving to. Um, so with decentralized identifiers, did come in the impervious browser, you can have all these capabilities and they can augment any third party service without the information dominance and the totalitarian downsides of additional consumer tech. Like you shouldn't have to trade off your privacy, life and family just to participate in society. Mm, yeah, definitely. I heard you say the creature from big tech and I can't help but think that's an allusion to the creature mm -hmm. from Jekyll Island, right? Which is the book about yeah. the inception of the federal reserve. Um, we've definitely moved into kind of a data monopoly environment early in the 21st Absolutely. century here. We think about like Fang stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, that control, like, as you said, they are permission networks, right? So there are these walled gardens that you as a user ask permission to be on the network and to use your data and use the network and what, what have you. So what is, I guess, what is the vision for impervious fitting into the current data monopoly environment? And is it disruptive to that? Like, do you see data monopolies Absolutely. going away or just kind of paint the picture yeah, for I, me from here into the future? I think we challenge it. We're currently, you're taken for, for granted from Twitter, Google, AWS, it doesn't matter, you know, um, you are dependent on their system, but it creates all kinds of perverse incentive structures. It creates perverse incentive structures. We're talking about the Federal Reserve and the incentive structures, right? Um, both for other participants and for the host. So if you're not respected, your data isn't valued, um, your privacy doesn't matter, um, then um, they're never going to actually fix these tools or services. But if you can basically perform all these capabilities, they don't have an excuse. If you're not the product, right? If they can't mine your data for advertisement, if they can't mine and harvest your data without permission, um, they actually, we created an incentive structure where they actually have to serve you, value you, mm. answer to you, the mm. individual. So I don't think that they are going to, you know, dematerialize, but I do think mm. we can bolster the incentive structure. And also when it's talking about perverse incentive structure, um, you know, if we're going to inculcate the values we care about um, in the physical world, private property, um, due process, privacy, uh, protection from unreasonable search and seizure, freedom of expression, we have to inculcate those values in our digital systems. And the, the current dependency model, the creature of big tech, whether we want to be or not, is, you know, there's the great kill switch, the toggle on and off. So mm -hmm. why would, if I disagree with you, why would I have a conversation with you, Robert? 
when I can just go around you and tell that third party, hey, you should toggle them off. But that incentive is saying, hey, look, um, you're dependent on the good graces and whims and, um, and, and preferential treatment of whoever's in control. So what I was alluding to earlier, you know, fan of Elon's vision, but to execute it, um, these systems have to work regardless of who's at the helm. Hmm. And, um, you know, you see in Game of Thrones and historically with any monarch, you talk about secession planning, like that's great. You know, you got your guy in power, right? Um, what happens after? And so the incentive structure is entirely around preserving the status quo, pushing a party who's in control of the helm. But if you reestablish uh, digital dignity and we have the individual control, especially in the face of uh, basically data consolidation where um, parties are incentivized to engage, then it can change what the current monopoly and infrastructure looks like. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's going back to that analogy for central banking. You know, one of the main problems mm -hmm. with monopolies is that, you know, to your point, they're just not accountable to their customers. When you are the only shop in town and your consumer has yep. no other options, right? They can't go to another producer of the good. Well, then you charge monopoly prices and reap monopoly profits, all of which come at the expense of the consumer, obviously. And so it seems like we kind of have natural monopolies in the current regime. Yep. And I'm, I guess that's just because we don't have Bitcoin, right? There's not a way for consumers to own their own data. So instead, they just use these networks for free and basically sell their attention to, yeah. uh, to advertisers via the network as a proxy. So if I'm stretching that, this might be stretching the analogy a bit, but it kind of reminds so. me of, I think of convertibility to gold. And in, in, mm -hmm. at central banking, it's like to own your own data is like to be able to swap your currency for gold, right? It's like, I'm going to take possession yep. of this and, um, you know, do with it as I please. So if you talk about designing systems, as you said, that have to work no matter who is at the helm, mm -hmm. are we talking about depoliticizing these things a bit? Because obviously we've Absolutely. seen Twitter give under political pressure. Others sort of censor based on pressure yeah. from government. Um, is that something that Impervious seeks to solve? Absolutely. So when I was talking about building censorship resistant tech stacks, and like you said, robust systems that function regardless of who's at the helm, uh, these aren't necessarily novel ideas. A hundred years ago, we founded uh, at, the, at basically the inception of the telecom network we designated telecommunication networks as common carriers, as utilities, because we decided 100 years ago we wanted the machines to work for us, not against us. So the common carrier, the telecom, doesn't have discretion of whether they'd like to connect a sender to a receiver. They can't say, um, are you in good standing? Uh, what is the content of the call going to consist of? Have you abused our systems before? Um, who are you? They just have to uh, connect a sender to a receiver because we decided that, hey, we'll use the rule of law instead of having prior restraint. Um, we will say, hey, look, if you abuse the system, you abuse additional laws and federal law, which come with tremendous consequence. But what we're not going to do is hover over and give third party intermediaries. We knew that at the beginning of systems um, to trust the individual. And when um, 
something you're talking about with gold and commodity prices or not prices, but controlling the equivalent of your data, which is a commodity yeah, and the commodity money and gold. Yeah. Yep. Um, I've been talking about, you know, we've seen all these failures for those FTX or, you know, centralized exchanges. People keep harping on remove your, uh, your money, remove your Bitcoin from centralized exchanges. Well, you need to remove your data from the equivalent of data exchanges and data brokers and these third-party hosts and services. Like it's already bad enough that there are economic consequences, but uh, the privacy component, the incentive structure, look at the CCP and what they've done with WhatsApp, or sorry, WeChat. They have uh, weaponized, and that's used so loosely today, but they've actually weaponized it for both dissent and for any party that leaves mainland China, their payments, their data, their communications, uh, the geolocation, it's all their ability to communicate and search. It's all based on uh, WeChat and they'll toggle them off. So if you leave China um, and you are a dissident or disfavored party, uh, they just use the great kill switch. So the incentive, like, it's the equivalent of CBDC for data. And, um, you know, if you look at the next 10 years, let alone 20, how many people are optimistic on world peace and stability, right? Uh, whether that's in Eastern Europe or uh, Southeast Asia or here at home, I'd say very few would realistically, you know, uh, with sober eyes tell you that they're long on stability. And the way we've trended for consolidation and abuse, we know how the CCP uses data. We know how the state we saw with Department of Homeland Security and the disinformation um, board, how they were going to use third-party proxies, and they already were pressuring, uh, collaborating, and coordinating with to suppress, uh, target, and monitor disfavored political parties. I go, wow, we're already there. This is no joke. And um, get your data off the equivalent of, of exchanges uh, because these tools exist, and that's why we're so psyched on Impervious, and the last 30 days have been so exciting for us like seeing that come to fruition. Mm, wow. It's freedom tech. It's enablement tech. Very cool. This I like this framing of the data monopolies as data exchanges, effectively, mm -hmm. that we are yeah. all depositing our data with, and we don't, we never withdraw it, really. You never monetize it. You never, you never stop feeding the thing more data just by participating with a network. So what is it about, use this term, digital dignity, which I like, mm -hmm. um, but what is it, what does that mean, I guess, to you, digital dignity? And then how, yep. how are we sacrificing our digital dignity in the current regime? Sure. So uh, sovereignty, discretion, control. Um, when you think of, here's a, um, a, a little uh, side note um, or adage, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, when his wife died, um, he didn't just destroy her letters. He went to each correspondent that she'd ever corresponded with and had them throw into the open flame their letters that um, uh, that his wife had communicated because they had decided beforehand what was meant to be public is already public or has been designated to a pawn and everything else was meant to be private. Um, and so when I think of digital dignity, and I think of uh, sovereignty, I think of individual data privacy, like, like individual data privacy is the foundation for consumer protection, for the open internet, 
for freedom and for national security related infrastructure issues. Like um, how many departments and agencies exist at the federal and state level um, for consumer protection? Um, there are innumerable, right? Uh, but there are no mechanisms to prevent the abuse and the data duplication to begin with because we don't have we don't have an option. If I want to message you, let's say typically, um, if we got on a Zoom call, I call Zoom, you call Zoom, they issue the encryption keys and they conduct what's known as the media mixing. So at a minimum, uh, you're hoping they're good actors uh, and not sharing those encryption keys and you don't know how, how they issued them and when they transfer them and to whom, and they definitely do, by the way, in each jurisdiction which they're compelled to comply with. Um, and then uh, functionally, from a fault tolerant uh, perspective, you expect that system to exist um, that they can host and facilitate. So uh, if you're not dependent on them for access, if you're not dependent on them for privacy, if you don't have to trust these third parties, life starts to look a lot better and a lot less complicated. Um, and you know the best way we're talking about creating uh, systems that that are um, uh, let's say sustainable in the long run. And to have sustainable systems that don't have perverse incentive structures where you have actors try to work around via proxy to censor, control, manipulate the parties in power, you need to remove the tools from those centralized actors to begin with. So if Zoom didn't have your keys, if they didn't control your identity, if Twitter didn't control your identity, if your data wasn't existing in their DMs, um, then all of a sudden you're depriving them of the ability or the temptation. Like we've always known that perverse incentive structures, um, you know, with absolute power um, is corrupted. And at a minimum, you know, if you're a good actor, third parties will seek to pressure you. And it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall. You see what sticks. You go, okay, well, this narrative didn't work, but they'll be receptive to disinformation or misinformation. What that knows, what, what that means, no one knows, right? It just means if there's something you disagree with, um, that looks disfavorable, it can make a party look bad. So if those parties don't have the tools or your private keys, they don't host your data, uh, they don't facilitate streaming video, audio messaging files, um, and email attachments aren't just sitting in email, but they go from my computer to yours, um, it limits the attack vector at which they can control um, and and toggle you off. Yeah, it's a really big deal and i'm reminded of i think it was nick zabo trusted third parties mm -hmm. or security holes um so i guess what Love nick. You, you are describing here is taking away that option or reducing the attack surface for some of these third parties exactly. to i guess conduct a man in the middle attack in a way right on your data yeah um you mentioned zoom there that zoom so is it known that zoom shares user call data with the state or authorities of some kind? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, dare I say, an open secret, but mm. they issue the encryption keys, right? So those encryption keys sit in a database. Um, they, per their terms of service, don't um, meddle with them unless there's a, a reason. And one of those is for law enforcement purposes or intelligence purposes, any jurisdiction in which they operate. So this isn't specific to the US. It's uh, they can compel and transfer those keys. And that's not just Zoom. It's any third party which controls data, um, they can be compelled to transfer it, even if they're good actors. So the best way to do it, 
you know, if party comes to us and they go, Hey, look, someone's been using impervious for X, Y, and Z. You go, that's great. Um, we're going to give you what we, what we have, which is nothing. Uh, we don't have their encryption keys. We don't issue them. Uh, we don't control the routing of information that's on them. So ultimately it's like, it's like yelling at a typewriter. Um, you know, what they didn't do with Ted Kaczynski or the Unabombers, they didn't go, Hey, look, we should get rid of typewriters. Um, so be the typewriter, like be the telecom, be the system that works regardless of who's at the helm. Um, because I would like, you know, these systems to continue to, to flourish. And, you know, you're talking about Nick Zybo. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's, um, a lot of analogies here. You just think about, we're, we're trying to inculcate the, like I was saying at the beginning, the values that we have in our physical reality into our digital world. So, you know, the founding, while we've strayed, we've strayed from the constitution, the founding principles uh, in the Federalist Papers were really um, part of the reason we wanted uh, basically a constitutional republic was to limit government power um, structurally and to preserve individual freedom and rights. And part of that was to ensure uh, to protect the minority from the tyranny of the from the, the tyranny of the majority, and there's no greater minority than the individual. So um, you know everyone at some point has fallen into a disfavored class, whatever, whatever race, religion, the low hanging fruit, but just even politically or among your friends or whatever. And structurally, you need to be able to participate, communicate with, and also without being tracked or retrospectively in the future. Um, have a party exploit these third parties that they didn't exist to survey you while a lot of, you know, your Gmail is uh, mined for ad purposes. Um, even the ones that uh, are good actors can be compelled or exploited. So like if you think of it as data consolidation and data, uh, it's both a data consolidation and a data duplication issue. So if every time, imagine uh, if every time you sent a letter via USPS, like snail mail, the first thing they did is open your letter, uh, copy it and set it on a shelf and say, and then they send it uh, you know, to the recipient and they hold it in perpetuity and they say, it's just better this way. It's safer this way. That's just how it works. You go, get the fuck out of here. Did you just take my mail, copy it and put it on a shelf for just in case one day? That is how our current infrastructure digitally works. I send a message, it goes to server, it stays there forever. Maybe they have the encryption keys, maybe they don't, but it's not your data. You need to control how it's stored, how it's routed, because right now it's making a copy, putting on a shelf and uh, hoping. And so these third parties just serve as honeypots, um, even if they're good actors for exploitation in the future. And they're brittle and fault tolerant. I mean, it's all downside. <laughs> besides convenience and, and speed, which we demonstrate um, is actually superior peer-to-peer. -peer. Yeah, so it's an un, maybe it was a necessary trade-off in the early day, the pre-Bitcoin days of the internet, but now, because what you're describing exactly. here is you're resolving the double spin problem with data. Yep. Right, yep. which is the same, I mean, that's, what, that's what Bitcoin did, right? That's the big fix. Yeah, I mean, what was the title of the Bitcoin white paper? A peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And when you can build uh, basically data structures, either parallel, similarly structured in the same way, um, you're solving, yeah, you, like you said, you can do the, the double spin problem without a centralized, whether it's a bank to check it or a centralized server 
to host, facilitate, provide it. You go, hey, I can do it myself. All the Bitcoin blockchain really does is it allows parties to validate who's controlling and has it been spent, right? Um, and uh, but it can't be uh, it, it can't be censored and it can't be you can't deprive parties unless you have the private key and that's how you have to think about data. Like yeah, that. it's a great, it's it's super. Yeah, the more you get into this Bitcoin rabbit hole, the more you start to see the parallels between just information and money, right? One of the mm-hmm. the big use case probably for money is that it propagates price signals in an economy, right? So it's it's actually distributing yep. information from the minds of individuals into the collective and back and forth. It's this this reciprocal wave, and uh, but that only works. Well, to the extent that money can't be counterfeited, right? Once you start counterfeiting or double spending the money, it propagates misinformation. I don't know if I want to use that term. It distorts price signals (laughs) and causes the misallocation of capital, exacerbating the boom and bust, et cetera, et cetera. That's all a data problem at the end of the day. It's all a data problem. You know, and I I was fortunate to have dinner with uh, a senator on Senate Finance Committee. and he was very receptive. He really wants American innovation, right? And he's very receptive to uh, various things, but all of the distractions from FTX writ large, you know, they really need not just constructive narrative, but to understand um, that the peer-to-peer internet and Bitcoin is really uh, distributed compute allows so much more uh, than the exchange of digital assets or of crypto assets, but it's, it allows, it's the foundation for consumer protection and national security infrastructure issues. Like you're talking about, it's a data issue. So um, how are you ever going to prevent the um, the body populace if you can't help the individual control their individual data? Either A, they don't know where it is, how it's duplicated. We have the USPS example where it's photocopied and kept on a shelf for every communication. Or even if they do, they can't do anything to stop it. So you kind of help parties to help themselves. You minimize the attack vector, and then you have a more robust system. And yeah, there's trade-offs. And yes, it can be more difficult for law enforcement. But guess what? Like, um, it's supposed to be difficult to deprive people of uh, property, life, um, or um, liberty, uh, or liberty. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's the entire. You're supposed to have a process in place and not just a toggle on and off switch. And by so by restoring those principles that the country was based on that we've strayed from, you're actually protecting, uh, and you're doing. You don't have to have greater administrative bodies and processes and, and various national security related infrastructure initiatives. You just need the individual to have the capacity to normalize this consumer grade technology. We go, hey, look, the ordinary person for the most part is pretty safe. Their comms are safe. Their uh, their files, their their uh, personal, family, uh, and business and consumer data or and customer data. That's all peer to peer and encrypted. Um, it's not just sitting there ripe for a honeypot. And you go, wow. Um, and so, reason I brought up the the dinner with the senator was he was wildly receptive to that. And he goes, oh my god, it's consumer protection, it's national security. It's privacy. It's the fundamentals. So by restoring the things the nation was founded on, we can achieve these greater goals without administrative bureaucracy, without centralization, without greater surveillance. You don't have to have the trade-offs. So uh, it's pretty exciting. That's a, that's a big yeah. deal. I often talk about 
you know, Bitcoin being more American than the U.S. Constitution in a way. And this is a prime example of that. You're just mm -hmm. getting back to the, I guess, just the foundational principles, but they've, Bitcoin sort of implements these principles in an unstoppable way or a very difficult yep. to stop way, at least. Um, and one of the things, I mean, that really strikes me, and this is pursuant to my conversations with, with Sailor and Jason Lowry, this idea nice. of bringing physics-like consequences into cyberspace, right? That's what the double spin problem is, right? It's a, it, yep. it is somehow detached from physics that we just have to now replicate a copy of this thing. And then every time we send a message, we're really just sending a copy, putting the original on the mm -hmm. shelf, as you said. But by adding Bitcoin, right? And it, it acts as like this bridge into thermodynamic reality. All of a sudden you can send something with finality Yep, and actually give up possession of something and send it to someone else that they take full possession of it in a way that was never possible yep. prior to Bitcoin. Um, and it's universally, it is mind blowing. So layer one, universally resolvable, right? So I transfer asset to you. Uh, it's something of value to you. Um, it's universally verifiable. Uh, Bitcoin Lightning Network, instantaneous. Um, and um, you think about the incentivized. So the incentivization around the Bitcoin Lightning Network, you know, you have a lot of blockchains. People go, oh, well, why does a blockchain particularly exist without some kind of incentive structure or altcoin or shitcoin or whatever? Um, and without them, you know, why would these computational networks persist? So Bitcoin has solved these issues. And we've reached this like threshold, this uh, like this breakout uh, threshold where we now have distributed compute. We have it in space. We we have the blockchain, Bitcoin blockchain everywhere. We have uh, tens of thousands of Lightning Node operators and parties that validate with layer one and layer two and can enable layer three. And because of that incentivized uh, transmission and uh, payment system, we now have distributed compute that's not in the hands of any one party that would have never reached there without the incentive structure that both proof of work and that uh, Bitcoin code. Um, so that's why we talk about incentives. Like what's the incentive for uh, getting your data off an exchange? What's the incentive for these distributed fault tolerant, resilient com computational systems to exist? And Bitcoin started it. Now we can piggyback and complement into our systems to make uh, uh, you know, structures that, that are sustainable and infrastructure that uh, doesn't create perverse incentives. It's incorrupt. Like we always call Bitcoin incorruptible money, but it sounds like by extension, you're creating incorruptible communication layers on top of it. Absolutely. Um, or deep, you know, another way of saying that is depoliticized communication layers. Right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what person you put in the seat. They don't have the option to change the, right. the actual architecture or rules that are governing the transmission of that data in this world we're describing. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like, I'll give a company some money in case shit happens. 
now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. All right, speaking of incentives, I've, I've been really trying to wrap my head around this because a lot of people have made really good points that these data monopolies... I mean, I think even the existence of these data monopolies is what took the concept of network effects mainstream. Like yep. we've talked, there's been literature on network effects for many decades, but no one really talked about it in common business circles until Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Exactly. Network effects are very difficult to break. I mean, this is one of the reasons Bitcoin is so successful, right? It has a very mm -hmm. strong network effect. It's multi-sided, et cetera. How can I've been thinking about how do we actually disrupt the network effects of FANG stocks? And I have not, I have, after thinking about this for years, really, I don't think there's any other way to do it other than giving yeah. individuals the ability to monetize their own data. So you're actually yep. incentivizing individual users to uh, leave one platform, leave Facebook, yes. for instance, and go to uh, incorruptible Facebook, whatever that application is, yeah, where you can't, exactly. you don't, they, they generate, they keep the revenue that is generated on their data, or maybe they selectively sell it to advertisers, something like that. There has to mm -hmm. be a direct individual financial incentive to get, to induce them to move off of the established network Absolutely. effect platform. So that's my 
theory. I don't know. I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So what's Facebook's excuse? I agree regarding incentive structure, right? So Facebook's excuse for not allowing that uh, the ability to export your social graph is because they go, hey, what is a social graph uh, if not the interactions, your connections to other people? And uh, if those connect network connections, if those other counterparties you interact with don't give their consent to demonstrate your uh, communication, um, then what is there to export? And so it's this, they've created a system where this goes back to identity and decentralized identity and decentralized communication, where really because they're issuing the identity and the permissions and access are based around that, they go, oh, well, it's in your interest. It's in consumer protection and data privacy. It's uh, it's for it's for you that you can't leave the network. So we were talking about Fang and monopolies. These the new data moats are we control your identity. That is a new data moat. It is. You create a large enough structure and then like any, you know, bloated historical legacy system or, you know, or company, it persists by just propping up what it has and creating these, you know, moats, uh, so to speak. And identity is that moat that we can cross. You go, hey, look, that's cool. I'm going to import my decentralized identity. And you can think of, uh, you know, any particular subnet. So imagine like with the impervious browser, this is what decentralized identifiers. And by the way, anyone can build it on our DIDCOM system now. You don't have to wait. So we both provide the tools and the infrastructure. And I can tell you, we can talk a little bit about the direction where we're going and the incentivize basically the marketplace and app store, which we're going to fold into uh, like the virtual operating system, which is the browser. But imagine if I call in from Zoom, you call in from WhatsApp, someone else calls in from Signal, someone else calls in from Google Hangout or Microsoft Teams. That's what DidCom enables. So when I say interoperable, I don't mean that in like some fuzzy, oh, you can't stop me. I mean, like literally it removes gatekeepers and it allows the transmission of uh, of data and of, of networks. Um, and it allows you to cryptographically control how it's routed, sent, and received. But if you're importing your identity, um, you can't be held in this data monopoly or, or remote. So I think there's hope. And that's why this is such a big deal. Um, it's a big deal for privacy. It's a big deal for control. It's a big deal for censorship resistance. Um, but also to challenge the status quo, you need an alternative without saying, oh, it's all or none. You don't need government to interdict via antitrust. You just need the ability to control your data. And now you're going to have an incentive structure where they're going to serve you. They go, no, 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 it's cool. Stay because we can do X, Y, and Z. And you know, there may be specific use cases where having a centralized uh, service provider has some novel value proposition. You go, okay, that's cool. Um, I am voluntarily choosing it. Not You're opting in, not opting out, right? Like you are choosing to allow it because it provides some value. And if you decide to stop using it, um, you're not hosed forever. You just, uh, you know, turn the nozzle off, you take your data and you go, and they have no control over future interactions. Like that is a positive incentive structure, just like the airlines, right? Like they keep consolidating, there's fewer and fewer airlines, you know, you get points. Uh, there's nothing you can do, you, you know, unless you choose to drive everywhere or take a submarine, you know, like you just can't cross oceans, um, you know, on your own. So, um, as we're relying on these systems, you go, look, this isn't necessary and there are ways around it. So, yeah, I mean, it's somewhat, 
intuitive. Um, well, the old saying that an armed society is a polite society. It's like when there's this symmetry <laughs> yes. of optionality, right? Where the consumer can always say no and take their business to another producer. And similarly, the producer uh, in competing with other producers, you know, keeps quality high, costs low, et cetera, et cetera. It's that it's the element of competition itself and the power to say no and go elsewhere that keeps everyone honest, yes. keeps the whole system working. But when you get yeah. these, you get people trapped, right? That you're in this walled garden and you can't, you can't do anything, right? Can't take your exactly. data or followers elsewhere. You can't monetize your data. You're sort of glued you're into stuck. the network in a way. Things get yeah, corrupt. People... Things get dishonest. Yep. Just like YouTube or any any content platform or Twitch streaming, um, that's great. But you should be opting into it, not to dependent beholden. Um, yeah. I'm definitely a fan of high fences make good neighbors. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, there are a lot of people in like our parents' generation and grandparents who are pre-social network, pre-social media. Uh, they got along professionally and they didn't know necessarily uh, parties' private lives, their political views. Maybe they shared it, but you could respect people on a day-to-day -day basis without being intrusive or judging. And we've, you know, we've gone off the rail and we can we can get to a point where whether it's employment, whether it's participation, whether it's content streaming. So one of the things the impervious uh, browser is going to have is we're going to have a marketplace for streaming content and streaming paid content where you go, hey, are you a content creator? Are you like a video game? Uh, are you a gamer? Are you an educator? Do you broadcast? Are you a performer? It doesn't matter. Um, you have the Bitcoin lightning layer layered with peer-to-peer -peer and encrypted streaming data. And it's you know borderless, permissionless, instant settlement. Most of the world does not have access to safe and sound banking, obviously. As you know, uh, you have to deal with remittance and settlement times. And none of that is necessary. You can stream peer-to-peer -peer and you go, hey, look, if there's this third-party marketplace, it's like, look, that's where all the businesses, like I'm choosing to, to opt into the centralized system, then like, fine. But there should be alternatives. And we've seen really high demand from parties that are either disfavored. There are nations that um, they have fewer um, options or they're just professionals and they want to work from home and they don't want to have to live in L.A. or New York and commute, especially post-COVID. People want it and they you know, deserve the ability. And we have the tools. So um, we're going to have a marketplace for streaming services. And then we're going to have a marketplace for third-party apps and uh, application developers where you go, hey, look, anyone who uses the peer-to-peer -peer internet standard, anyone who has streaming Bitcoin Lightning payments built in, anyone who uses DIDs in any compatible or complementary way, um, you can log in directly. Now you have that unified uh, system. You have a de facto operating system without the WeChat level information dominance uh, relegation of the individual and de uh, depriving the individual of control access. And it's like, hey, let's keep building. It's a call to action. And as is, you know, um, we use the Bitcoin Lightning Network, like I said, not just for payments, but optionally to route data. Now, all the capabilities on the impervious browser exist and uh, are available without using, besides payments, uh, Bitcoin Lightning node. But optionally, uh, Bitcoin Lightning Node allows you, like I said, to route and control how you send and receive information with payment structure or payment mechanism built in. So um, 
in the West are firewalls um, and our networks are built. So um, it's called asymmetric um, NAT, but basically our firewalls allow for outgoing message uh, and outgoing uh, data, but incoming data streams are blocked. So you're not DDoSed and hijacked and your network's not compromised. So using the Bitcoin Lightning Network, if you're a node operator, you can, for a few sats, traverse asymmetric NAT, establish a peer-to-peer and -peer an encrypted, uh, uncompressed, unthrottled, higher quality, lower uh, lower lag, uh, higher frame rate call than Zoom. And you can control soup to nuts, how it's stored, sent, and received. And the other party, let's say you call your mom. Mom doesn't have a lightning node yet. We'll simplify putting that in the browser. But let's say she doesn't. You may say, I'm going to... That's how I like to send and receive information because I don't want to re rely on anyone's relays. I don't want to rely on a third party's uh, base. It's just pipes, right? I don't rely on someone else's data pipes. It's And it's incentivized Tor. I mean, that's what um, the Lightning Network is, incentivized Tor. It's onion routing and layers of onion routing where one node can't see uh, further than the node that it uh, received information or received the last payment from. It can't see two hops back, only the last person. So... There's, depending on your uh, threat assessment, depending on your needs, privacy concerns, or your operational requirements, or just your day-to-day -day privacy, you may choose to use it. You may choose to use it when traveling abroad. You may choose to use it to opt out of existing systems or ones you don't trust. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel is kind of my point and call to action. It's not a contrived use of the Bitcoin Lightning Network. It's an optional signaling command and control layer. So with th if you get 300 bytes for free, most of uh, the block of a, a basically a lightning transaction, most of it's just filled with noise for uniformity. So you can't, you know, you know see so uh, basically for privacy purposes, each block externally looks the same. But what we do is we fill that block with uh, signaling command and control information. I go, hey, look, I'm Chase. Here's my port. Here's my uh, relay. Here's how I'd like to send and receive information. Here's my computer. Let's, um, and then we will provision a call or send messages through it. So without congesting the network, you have additional routing and command and control capability. And this already exists because of everything we were just discussing, which is because Bitcoin has incentivized the greatest system of distributed compute in human history. We can use that to our advantage and we can complement it with existing tools. We also use HTTPS WebSockets and WebRTC. So you can pair them and any one party is talking about discretion and control. My preferences don't have to match my neighbors. They don't have to match my parents. They don't have to match yours. It's up to you. And you're now normalizing command and control at the signaling, or like at the data transmission, at the signaling and at the data storage layer. It's really, really powerful and really cool. I mean, you were talking about a, I'm correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is a fundamental overhaul of the internet layered yes. protocol development, right? What do they call the internet yep. protocol suite basically being revamped yep. as a result of this, what is it Bitcoin is doing? It's just sort of incentivizing honesty in or honest treatment. Yeah, in incentivized privacy, incentivized tour, incentivized yeah. distributed compute. And yeah. you're incentivizing resilient networks to exist. Right. Um, and for them to be available. Like you still need a pipe to send data. You still yes. need a stream, right? And, um, you know, there are other Bitcoin companies uh, and not taking shots at anyone. It just our, our approach is just unique for us, right? Incorporating Didcom. 
we've the other component in addition to identity is I was talking about layer two, or I should say, sorry, web two and web three or web five or whatever, the peer-to-peer internet. We pair, instead of having to choose everything has to be built on Bitcoin, like every transaction has to be one on lightning. Well, we take an approach where everything's optional. You can send a message via HTTPS, peer-to-peer, cryptographically mm-hmm. secured, via WebSockets, via WebRTC, or via um, Lightning. We complement and interlace existing internet, like with the future internet, like you said, like mm. it's a revamp of the internet, but for us to win, and by us, I mean, everyone, for Bitcoin, Lightning, for privacy, for distributed compute mm. to win, you don't need Web2 to just completely disappear you need to augment it like we're talking about bridging those moats mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. bridging the uh the the fang identity moats go mm-hmm. hey look i control my identity i can route and send receive information i can pull it from anywhere i host it on my machine or my third-party decentralized uh platform mm-hmm. and you go hey look like augment the existing and then you start making it uh i think it just transmogrifies the basically the the topology of the existing monopolies where mm-hmm. um they don't like hp and ibm is a husk of what it was 40 50 years 60 whatever years ago um they didn't mm-hmm. go away but they look vastly different we can do the same and we are doing the same and by having these conversations people realize these tools like two years ago when we started this like these were uh, obtainable uh, but they were aspirational in the sense of, hey, mm-hmm. we know this works, but we need it to be robust. We need it to be consumer friendly. We need it to be, uh, you know, kind of dummy proof. It needs to just work and it needs to be, you know, in a consumer friendly, uh, familiar way. So, you know, mm-hmm. we've used the impervious browser to uh, initiate a video call or send a message. You go, yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, you're sending video, I'm finally sharing a file. You go, no, 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 no. It may look familiar. We were just trying to, create the UI UX familiarity, mm. but that's where the familiarity is end because mm. you're actually doing it on the peer-to-peer internet and you're choosing how you route, store, send, receive, access information and data. And um, and it's really cool and, it, and, it's, and it's a big lift, but it's one we made tremendous strides on. So once people realize like, hey, look, um, and it's been a wild month since the browser's been out. This is a viable alternative to existing tools and services and any bugs or any product maturity that all comes with stride. Like, okay, 30 days of being completely the alpha, completely public in another 30 days, it's going to be wild. We've seen tens of thousands of people in 97 or 98 countries now, mm. uh, download it and use it and usage is high. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's really cool because people value it. They, they understand it. So every time they go, hey, I'm going to get on a Zoom call. Well, why? Have a peer-to-peer and an encrypted call. And you don't have to leave the browser. Send mm-hmm. me a message. I don't have to start a call to initiate to, for us to send. And using uh, Bitcoin Lightning Network and using, like I was talking about Web2, HTTPS and WebSockets and WebRTC, we can have offline push notifications. So all the convenience of traditional messaging apps without the need for us to just have to sit here like, um, that was a problem at first and why Didcom was so important because otherwise, and there are other peer-to-peer tools that do this where they only work if you're already in a room. Okay, I have to sit mm-hmm. here on a video call, but once I leave, I have to go live my life. I have to go work and um, what I can't message you again until we get back in a call. It's like, no, you need the messaging component. You need the signaling. And you know we have live docs. So it's like, you know, 
the mature, the product maturity of our live docs is definitely the least mature component of what we have. But if you compare, you're so used to live docs on Google, but I stream into Google. I'm using Google's identity. Uh, they can see everything I'm working on in a shared Google doc. Uh, and we have this, basically we're meeting in the middle on Google servers and we have this live uh, duet or collaboration mm. coordination of data. What we do is we create this peer-to-peer -peer cryptographically secure data transmission channel, just like a video call, you know, and it's arbitrary whether they're sending, what bytes are sending. So is it video, is it audio, is it text? Um, and we create an application where it detects the delta, the change in state on each machine, and then it reflects on yours locally. Unencrypted data mm -hmm. never leaves the machine and there's no third party hosting it, mixing it, surveying it. It's wild. And it's a proof of concept that's like, it's like, this is crazy. I mean, the other day I sent 15 gigabytes, uh, you know, you can attach a file. We, so if we have, uh, a connection, uh, it chunks it, it then uploads. And as long as we have a connection, there's no throttling or limitation. So it's it just like an advanced messaging or video application where I'm, I'm in signal, or I'm in WhatsApp or WeChat or whatever, I upload a file, but instead of going to a server, we go, Hey, I'm going to chunk this directly to your, you, it's in encrypted data packets, and we're going to reassemble it on your end. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only thing that can stop it is if this data transmission, if our internet goes out, mm -hmm. but it's actually really, really fast because you, you, a don't have the third party servers you have to get to first that then mm -hmm. compress that then media mix and push back down. And you don't even on the basic sense, you don't even have as many speed of light issues, you have fewer parties to deal with. Mm -hmm. So you go, wow, it's not just more secure. I don't just have to deal with the USPS issue of where am I sending a file whenever I have an email attachment goes to Gmail, even if it goes to Proton Mail, and I love Proton Mail, right? You still have to rely on these third-party systems. It goes, it's my computer to yours and less designated otherwise. And it may be these really great tools like Proton Mail where you go, hey, that's a great incentive. I want that to exist, but I control mm -hmm. the keys. So I send you a message or uh, upload a file, my computer to yours. Um, and you're only limited by the speed of your own internet connection. And it's like, it's an exciting future, man. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is such a important message that I guess a lot of people, including myself, didn't realize that there is, I guess in this new world, there is no low to no trade-off between performance and privacy. Absolutely. And um, that is a massive deal because a lot of these Mm -hmm. concessions we've made right like oh just let the data monopoly handle it that's all in the in the with the aim of convenience let's say or the aim of performance but if that mm -hmm. goes away i mean you talk about it just seems like it's a an area that's radically going to economize everything we do because yep you're cutting out middlemen left and right top to bottom and things just become more direct more private more mm -hmm. uh i guess controlled by the individual which is it's the same Absolutely. thing as bitcoin again controlling your own property controlling your own money independent of all these third parties uh exactly. it just affords the individual tremendous power and autonomy yep and you don't have to have this like you know in machine learning you call it like the cold start problem where you have to start from somewhere we don't have to rebuild like you don't have to tear down twitter and everyone goes oh i'm gonna go to mastodon or i'm gonna the parties that were seeking to counter it i go look don't you realize like the benefits of uh, the early internet and the consolidation of these monopolies or these large centralized service providers and platforms and tools um, now it's not fully replace and, you know, relegate mm -hmm. it's, Hey, look, uh, if you don't, 
there are going to be other services that are interoperable where I can control my messaging, video, mm -hmm. file, you know, all of the data and identity. And if you're not interoperable and if you don't have decentralized identifiers, like you're just another subnet and right. you better provide such wild value proposition that you never want to leave. And people thought Facebook was going to be a monopoly forever. I understand Meta, the holding company, the parent company owns a lot of different um, entities, but, um, and tools, but Facebook itself, you know, grew pretty stagnant as far as mm -hmm. tools and features. And you go, look, nothing will persist forever in stagnation without some type of incentivization. You'll have competitors. And this isn't as far off as people think, right? Mm. Use DIDs, use the browser, normalize peer-to-peer -peer and an encrypted technology and realize that like, if you're not relying for these things, then, and it's not interoperable, like what good are you? And yeah. pressure them. And also say like, you know, this was telling the Senator, like, you know, if you want Facebook, the best way to help them, they always claim that they're going to, they respect user privacy, right? It's, it's their highest concern is data privacy mm -hmm. and, and the individual. Well, if you actually, uh, you know, there is a framework for best practices for data privacy um, and that is ensuring the individual controls that data. They control their identity and they're not stuck on the subnet and it's interoperable. So remove the gates and they can adopt this. This is not like aspirational future technology. It works now and it works really well. And like, we'd encourage everyone else to like realize like, Hey, build on it, support it and see. And like, you know, Facebook's been around 2004 to, you know, 18 years. It's been 30 days, you know, a few weeks impervious has been fully released hmm. and another quarter and another year. This, I mean, normalize it, use it. And then realize that these are options that are viable today and they're viable right. alternatives that will protect the body populace and the individual, your family, uh, consumer data and customer data. This parallels very nicely something I tweeted recently that, you know, mm -hmm. no one ever forces you to use Bitcoin. It's always opt in. Yeah. But the option value of opting into Bitcoin increases tremendously the more people try to force you to do other things, right? The more censorship, yep. the more inflation, the more taxation, the more divisiveness, regulation, mm -hmm. oppression of all kinds, right? It increases the option value of, of money that um, is immune to all that bullshit. And so it sounds like you're doing something similar, right? You're just giving people more options by augmenting these communication yep. networks. So when the pain does come, right, they get censored. Yeah. Or whatever happens, they at least have yeah. the option to opt into something that where that's not possible. Exactly. Um, and it should be less consequential, right? Where if these are norms, right? Uh, let's say the future Daenerys Targaryen, Elon, you know, uh, Techno Caesar, it's a, it's a disfavored party or party, you know, you go, hey, it's not that big a deal. If anyone subnet doesn't like what I have to say or do, they're not cut off my identity or like people still reach me the same way. Mm -hmm. I can still send and receive and participate, you know, fluidly and you can flow around all those other networks. So the real, you know, it's almost like the irony is censorship should be so trivial because it's non-consequential. It doesn't affect anything else. So you go, all right, screw you. Like, I don't mm -hmm. care. Like all that does is diminish the value proposition of your network. If I can't participate in it, you're like, okay. It doesn't change how people see me, send, receive. You can't mine my data. And by the way, if you want to provide, you want to, uh, 
incur advertising revenue. If you want participants in your social network, you should probably incentivize in a way that people want to use it. So yeah. it all goes back to positive incentives. And we do see it as building on Satoshi's vision, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system that yeah. distributed uh, censorship and surveillance resistant computational layer um, can be augmented for data, get your data off the equivalent of exchanges, mm -hmm. re reclaim your digital dignity and like normalize it and go, what unique value proposition do you provide? Mm. And, uh, you know, the future is bright. I mean, like I said, while international, you know, geopolitical landscape is pretty grim, I would say, mm -hmm. uh, just, <laughs> I don't think that's controversial. Um, mm. you should feel more, that's why we call impervious. You should feel less susceptible to third-party actors, whether that's a proxy, an individual, or platform. You should feel impervious to the pressures and um, some of that awkwardness day-to-day -day of, go, God, is today the day? Or what mm -hmm. if this platform doesn't work? You go, hey, it's on you. You can compose yourself. Um, you're living in a new peer-to-peer -peer internet. Yeah, you're becoming more impervious to political bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Opinions and actions of others, and you're just therefore more free. I mean, it's almost the same, yeah. saying the same thing. So this bright orange future, I guess, that we're painting. Mm -hmm. I like that. Is this the end of internet censorship? The distant vision of this? Or like how how significant does this change the landscape of digital media i mean do we actually get to a world where it's just not even a thing anymore i think it yes and no right where i think if you have discretion you can participate in the systems that you choose um in the way that in the manner you'd like to participate if we have systems that function and they're like utilities they are sustainable infrastructure then you go hey look any particular subnet is secondary. Um, the actual censorship, um, the bright red future, I think it's one of persuasion. You move away from coercion. You are moving away from um, circumventing the individual, go, I don't like you, or I don't want to deal with you, where you go around the individual and you try to, either from a macro perspective, people that talk about certain things, um, instead of trying to de-incentivize and pressure third parties, uh, you know, you have one of persuasion where, hey, look, you need to cater to parties, you need to protect their privacy, and you need it to be interoperable. Mm. And so I think it's one towards persuasion. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, and persuasion, when you control your identity, when you control your data, when you control your comms, when you control your payments and your livelihood, mm -hmm. uh, that is one of persuasion. We're like, you need an incentive. Like maybe you're lazy, so you stay on it. But like, ultimately, you're not dependent on it. That's what I was talking about. We've become subjects of digital tyranny and creatures of big tech. We're just mm -hmm. dependents, like literal dependents. And if you're not dependent, persuade. Yeah, and if you're not optimistic. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. And then you yeah. can be more optimistic, like optionality. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Optimize, optimistic optionality. This, this idea of just moving away from coercion as like the prime mover in human affairs obviously leads to a more meritocratic world, right? Where yes. you get ahead by doing something useful for people rather than pointing yeah. a gun at them or sending them a, a legal scary gram or whatever. Like it just, yeah, 
we've gotten way, I mean, that's like fiat world in a nutshell to me is that we think we can just speak things into existence or tell people what to do. And like that shit doesn't work. It does not work. It is unsustainable as we are proving right with the, the current breakdown in the world. So I think that's well said. Like if we look back at, um, like COVID, you know, when it comes to matters of greatest import, whether it's personal security, family security, uh, bodily autonomy, privacy, national security, matters of war and peace, health, like when it matters most, that's when it's essential. It's imperative that you have the ability to both send and receive information, to exchange ideas, and mm-hmm. to criticize and challenge um, those that uh, empower, those that are running systems or systems that you depend on or participate in. And what we did with, co- with COVID is a perfect example of the worst possible way to approach that, where instead of having uh, a public dialogue on, hey, look, even if ultimately, let's say um, that there was nothing wrong with the COVID vaccine, it was the best thing since sliced bread and everything was great. Well, then, you know, it's like, it should be self-evident and you should be able to communicate any uh, concerns parties have, and you should be able to persuade them and say, hey, look, I understand here are all the reasons. You should be able to answer questions. It's only when there are issues, you know, when you go, hey, look, no more questions, right? Like I'm walking away, no more questions. Mm. And, uh, you know, the next time when we're looking at geopolitical landscape, what if you can't question the powers that be? Or what if you're in an area, conflict area? Or, you know, um, look what Canada did with the truckers, the, you know, freezing their bank accounts, uh, depriving them of their livelihood and their ID, their driver's license. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all kill switches and toggles. And I go, you ever think for one second that there is like a very prominent group, even if they're a minority? Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, what was the foundation of the Democrat or the Constitutional Republic? It was to limit the government uh, uh, and to enshrine these uh, rights by protecting the individual, protecting the greatest minority from the tyranny of the majority. Mm-hmm. And um, we need to have these systems in place that, you know, that enable it. And if we're, you know, whatever the next future issue is, or rather there's personal issues, they don't concern everyone. Um, you need to know that the systems work, you can challenge it. And without reprisal or recourse, like right now, everyone knows like, you can challenge the government legally. They may not be able to like serve an injunction, but they pressure the third party actors, whether it's what, you know, it's spaghetti at the wall. We're saying mm-hmm. earlier, is it misinformation? Mm-hmm. Is it public health? I go, get the fuck out of here. It's my right. opinion. You yeah. don't, you don't have to do anything with it. It's just my, it's just my opinion. Yeah. And your opinion, you know, is equal. And that's the cool thing. Everyone has one. Right. And it's like, awesome. Um, persuade. <laughs> yeah. Persuade. I like this idea of just killing the kill switches, you know? That seems like a huge value add for the world. Deprive Uh, the tyrants of their convenient tools. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Arming the individual, depriving the tyrants, I guess. Yeah. Dude, that is, uh, this is all super exciting stuff. Um, And I guess just by way of like full disclosure, I am an investor and advisor in TVP fund. Who, oh, is, sweet. who is an investor with you guys. Right. So I just wanted to throw that out there um, in kind of the ethos of, of Bitcoin, right? Full transparency. Yeah. But this uh, is the first conversation we've had about it. I this think. is the first conversation we've had about it. And it's something I talk about a lot. Like I talk about internet censorship sure. and, you know, obviously the struggle between the individual and the collective. And it is ultimately about that. It's just the balance of 
power or options between the two, right? So if the collective plays a card, right? We're going to censor mm-hmm. you or deplatform you or take your bank account, whatever it is. Well, mm-hmm. we need the individual to have counter options, right? Like, oh, exactly. you tried to take my bank account. Well, guess what? It's in Bitcoin multi-sig and you can't yep. do that. So that's what it is. Just this game of of constantly maintaining some balance between uh, individual and collective forces, I guess. And this... Yep. What you guys are working on is a big, yeah. big toolkit for the individual. Absolutely. Like augmenting Satoshi's vision, moving that to data, communications. It's it's awesome. And it's and it's exciting that, like you said, you're on mission, even though we hadn't discussed this, um, we understood what's at stake, right? Mm-hmm. And like here we are, and it's no longer an experimental technology. It's like use it, normalize it. Like yeah. let's go. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chase, man, it is, it's great talking to you and this is all super exciting stuff. Um, and I look forward to to learning more. And like I said, I'm in LA often, so I'll I'll come see you next time. Um, could you please let my audience know where they could find out more about your work? Absolutely. So you can go to impervious.ai, download the browser today available in windows, Mac and Linux. You can follow us on Twitter where we're most active at impervious AI. Um, I'm Chase the Truth, and my co-founder Mark Stites, Ridgeback one 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 one. We're on mission. We've got a lot coming up. Um, you don't have to wait for future tools. We're going to build. We're going to continue uh, maturity of all our capabilities: messaging, communications, identity management, file sharing. But you can build on it today. It's hmm. a call to action for the community. Like it's, you know, we're under the most permissible MIT and Mozilla licenses. You don't need our permission. You can use the DIDCOM network. You can integrate into existing tools or you can build whole new ones. And then we're going to have a marketplace where you can share what you've built and we can all interoperate. So we're on this together. It's a mission focused company. Um, It's like I told TVP and Christopher Calicott, the first conversation we ever had is like, hey, this is great. We appreciate your support and we would love it, but we're building this shit anyway. Like this is happening (laughs) because it's the world we want to see. And Christopher like clapped. He's like, all right, like I'm in. (laughs) that's a great thing about bitcoiners is um there is this spirit or attitude of just like just get to work right it's like i don't know that i talked to peter diamandis yesterday and he had this whole spiel about how important the entrepreneurial mindset is how it's the ultimate asset that you'll just run through walls right to create the vision of the world that you have and that seems to be extremely common among Bitcoiners and something I'm very grateful to be, to be part of, right. Just to be a part of that community. So um, hats off to you, sir, doing good stuff. Um, Thanks man. And you know, I'm looking forward to seeing like we build empowerment tech and freedom tech. mm. And so thanks for chatting me about it and looking forward to see where it goes, dude. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do it again. Thanks Chase. Talk soon.